thanks, uh, Tim. One of the um, wonderful encouragements that we've heard over the last uh, number few weeks is uh, many of you have been praying for them, knowing that in the place in which they work, uh, that it's a very lonely place. But we have heard in the last couple of weeks that there are a few uh, other individuals heading there, two doctors and a nurse. Uh, will be joining them uh, in the city in which they work. And so that's wonderful and exciting answer to prayer that God has brought uh, in the last number of weeks. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Brad, and I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And I want to invite you to grab your Bible and pull it out, either the one you brought or the one that's on your phone, or you can head back and talk to Michelle and Terry at the Welcome Center, and uh, they'll get you a copy for you to borrow And if you don't have one uh, of your own, then please take that home. That's our gift to you. We'd love uh, for you to have a copy of it. And as you pick up your Bible, one of the questions that sometimes comes up uh, as I talk to people about engaging with the Scriptures is, how should I read the Bible? And if you've never picked up a Bible uh, before, what would be maybe your instinctive response in terms of a reading strategy for the Bible. Well, if you live in North America or or a Western-oriented culture, you would probably do what you do with most books. You'd pick it up, and you'd open it up on the left-hand side, and then you'd begin to flip and kind of start at the top of the left-hand page and then move down, and then you'd flip to the next page and so on and so forth, because that's just how we're accustomed to reading books uh, in Western culture. Now, if and when you do this, Let me paint a little bit of a picture for you as to what you would find there. Uh, First of all, you might not actually realize how uh, thick of a book and how much content the Bible actually has because for some reason, in Western culture, we print it on fancy, very thin paper. If you print it on thicker paper, uh, it's actually quite a big book, and so it's a bit of an undertaking to get through it, first of all. Uh, And then you'd come across an introduction, uh, which usually is pretty boring stuff because it talks about Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic and all of the original languages that the text was written in, and then why they made some decisions about certain translations and all of those types of things. And then you get through the table of contents, and then you usually have a a bit of a title page, uh, and it usually says something like, the Old Testament. And so then you kind of know, okay, I guess we're beginning something here. Uh, And then you're on to the first book in the Old Testament, the book of beginnings, Genesis, which we studied in January and February uh, in our Sunday morning teaching series. And you guys will be finishing that off uh, while I'm on sabbatical uh, this summer with some uh, teaching uh, from some special guests and from Pastor Keith. So uh, when you get into the book of Genesis, one of the great things you'll find is that Genesis has some very exciting stuff in it. Some fantastic narratives. We've got snakes right away at the beginning. Uh, We've got all kinds of deception happening. We've got sibling rivalry going on. Uh, We've got murder early on. Uh, We've got lots of very interesting stuff. We've got uh, travel to exotic locales happening. We've got stories of people that uh, start out in prison, and then they end up as like second in command of the whole known world. And it's all very exciting stuff in Genesis. So you're doing pretty well if you're reading from the left and going to the right and you're in Genesis. Then, Then you come to the next book in the Old Testament, and that's the book of Exodus. 
Exodus continues with some very exciting stories. There's a power struggle between oppressed people, and we find out they've been enslaved for about 400 years, and then God sends a, a rescuer, a deliverer to come. So there's dramatic showdowns. There's a bush that catches on fire and doesn't burn up. There's rivers turning to blood. There's 10 plagues that strike the land of Egypt. Uh, there's all kinds of very interesting stuff. Then... After that, the narrative slows down for a little bit. Uh, there's uh, rules of life that get discussed. There's things like the Ten Commandments. And then there's a little more rules for liturgy. There's a description of an interesting construction project, complete with an inventory of all the items that they would need for a little portable worship setup while they were transitioning from Egypt and going to uh, the Promised Land. And so that inventory takes up actually quite a lot of chapters. And so uh, we're beginning to see that the, the Bible has various types of genre in it, not just narrative. So then you keep reading from the left to the right, you get into the third book, which is called the book of Leviticus, which is quite literally a book of laws or a book of the law. And so here we get into procedures for pretty much anything you think about. There's all kinds of different types of offerings that are to be offered. There's instructions on the ordination, hiring, and firing of priests. There's descriptions of what makes you ceremoniously clean or unclean. We hear about things like uh, medical conditions and skin diseases and bodily discharges, what to eat and not eat. Apparently, pork is out. A lot of these rules have to do with something we're given to understand called holiness, living in a way that pleases God. And some of them are very, very specific. Like, for example, God says in Leviticus that you shouldn't wear uh, anything that is made of more than one type of material. So a polycotton blend is out. So check the tags on your clothes and just see what's going on there. Uh, we learn about religious festivals. We learn about a yearly calendar that uh, the people of Israel to observe. We learn about setup and takedown instructions for worship space. Uh, it's perhaps not quite as sexy as Genesis and Exodus. And so sometimes we skip over those types of parts because it slows our reading down a little bit if you're going from left to right. So then you come to the book of Numbers. And Numbers reads like a manual for the Ministry of Vital Statistics. And some of you love that level of detail, and that's good for you. Uh, Numbers is all about who is supposed to do what when. And so there's vows, there's uh, forms to be filled out, there's styles of ancient worship. There's some, then we get into some cool stories about people rebelling and God doing things like striking them dead. So the narrative picks up again at that uh, point in time. And then we get into some wars. And uh, then there's also a lot of census data towards the end. So then we get into the book of Deuteronomy. Now, if you can say or spell Deuteronomy by this time, then you're doing well. The law is repeated. There's a lot of speeches about who's supposed to do what and not do what. So you get my point about the first sections of the Bible. If you just pick it up and you start reading from left to right, very early on, we get to the place of the fact that we come to realize there's a lot of something called law in the Bible. A lot of early real estate in the Bible is given to this thing called law. And so we have to wrestle with the implications of that, and we have to ask the question, then what do you and I do with those elements of the text when we read it today? And as I see it, 
we kind of have three basic options that we can do as we approach uh, the first kind of five books of the Old Testament, particularly the law-oriented sections of them. Option one is we can follow them literally. And so if it says it, we should do it. If it says don't do it, we shouldn't do it. Uh, option two is we can maybe go through and pick or choose which ones we like or which ones we felt might suit us in a given situation, and then others we could discard for a particular set of reasons. Or number three, we could just ignore or minimize this section of the Bible altogether, which quite a few people do. Well, a few years ago, a, a journalist uh, from New York by the name of A.J. Jacobs, himself the product of a secular Jewish home, decided he was going to take on a project, and he was going to take one full year of his life and he was going to try as hard as he could to live out every single rule that he found in the Bible. And so if there was a law, he was going to try and follow it. Everything from not trimming his beard in a certain way to the specific food choices to the admonition of stoning adulterers. He was going to take 365 days and actually figure out if he could live out the law section of the Bible. And so he writes about it actually quite intriguingly in his book entitled The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. Well, you can imagine some of the challenges that he comes in contact with as he wrestles with, what do I do with these sections of the Bible called law? And Jacob certainly is not the first person to wrestle with the implications of this. Uh, we're going to look this morning in our series on the book of Romans at the second half of chapter 2. And we're going to ask the questions of what should you and I do with God's law? What are the implications for us? What are the aspects that we need to rightfully consider? What do we need to know and what do we need to do? And so let's pray as we look into God's word uh, this morning in Romans chapter 2. God, we say thanks for your word. We say that it's truth and that it is, uh, the, your uh, scripture says it's profitable for us, for encouragement, for correction, for teaching, for instruction in righteousness. And so we believe that. And there's also parts which we want to wrestle with that and ask questions of what are the implications of your word to us here in our lives today? And so, God, we want to come with open hearts and open minds, ready to hear you and receive from you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, you might uh, recall that in the weeks leading up to Easter, we're in a teaching series going through some of the big picture items in the book of Romans under the series title, But Now, The Greatest Words Ever Spoken. And that phrase, but now... Uh, talks about a movement or transformation in our lives. As in, I once was unemployed, but now I have a job. Or in the first half of the book of Romans, we explored a little bit in chapter 2, two weeks ago, uh, we came to understand that there was a time when you and I were far from God. But because of our actions, we were subject to God's wrath and His judgment. But if you made a choice at some point in your life to say, I want to accept who Jesus is, and I want to wrestle with the implications of that 
for my life. But now, because of the forbearance and mercy of God, he's provided a way through the life and death of Jesus to uh, not be under God's wrath and experience judgment for sin. Romans 8, verse 2 says this, Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who has given you life set you free from the law of sin and death. So, one of the natural questions that ought to come to us is, uh, if Christ has set us free, does that nullify or invalidate, or what does that do to Old Testament law in particular? In some ways, for us, it's a question that we don't wrestle with very often, because it seems like a bit of a a foreign or an antiquated concept for us. But if you think about those who were written, uh, the recipients of this early letter in the New Testament, in the early Christian movement, this was the most heated topic of debate that you could possibly imagine. Think about it. If you are uh, a Jewish Christian you have been accustomed to living under the law for millennia, and maybe even for a good portion of your own life. And then, now you have these non-Jews or Gentiles, and they're coming to faith in Jesus, and they're saying things like, well, Jesus died, I have faith in him, to heck with all of your silly rules. They don't apply to me anyway. And you can imagine the theological and the interpersonal and the intercultural issues that conflict that this created in the life of the early Christian movement. And so this discussion as to what to do about laws in the Old Testament, particularly those in the first five books of the Old Testament, which were Torah or law, uh, was one of the most potent and charged discussions of the first several centuries, in fact, of the Christian movement. And so the driving question behind the question of law is the one that is brought up in Romans chapter 2, and that is the question that all of us have to wrestle with. How could I know, how could I ever get to a place in my life that I may know whether I am right with God? How do I know if I'm right with God? What would get me into heaven? And so in the book of Romans, one of the leaders and key thinkers in the early church lays out a complex but compact set of arguments to try and answer these types of questions. And in the book of Romans, uh, the law is mentioned 50 times. So it's one of the capstone themes of the book of Romans that he comes back to again and again and again and tries to come at it from different angles to try and help both his initial readers and us understand the implications of that question. How could you know that you are right with God? Should you go about it in a more Jewish way, which had been historically the way that it was done, of, all right, these are the rules in which I want to keep to then make sure that I'm right with God? Or should we go about it in a different way, which the Gentiles or the new people to the Christian movement were advocating? And so that question is not a dusty or antiquated history lesson. Every one of us needs to wrestle with the question in our lives, am I right with God? If so, how do I know that? If not, how would I get there in some way? And what would give me any level of certainty to answer that question? Is it contingent on following a set of rules? If so, what rules and for how long? If not, what's it contingent on? 
So let's look at our text because it provides a clear set of answers and compelling answers for us. So turn with me to Romans chapter 2, uh, verse 17, and I'm going to be reading uh, from the New Living Translation. The text will come up on the side screens for you. Romans 2.17 says this, You who call yourselves Jews, you're relying on God's law, and you boast about your special relationship with Him. You know what God wants. You know what's right because you have been taught the law. You're convinced that you're a guide for the blind. You're a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God. For you're certain that God live, give, God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? He began this argument in the first part of chapter 2. You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it's wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You're so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. So the picture that we get from these verses and from the earlier part of chapter 2 that we looked at two weeks ago is this, that those who are part of the Christian movement in this time period, and they have Jewish heritage, they come into that experience thinking, I know how to get right with God. I have a set of rules by which I can live and which God has given to us historically, and that's the way, if I follow those, that I can get right with God. Now, in their defense, they have the argument of history on their side because before Christ came into the picture, this was indeed the case. There was a very good purpose and a clear set of purposes as to why the law was given to Moses and the prophets. There was a purpose for the law, and they're good purposes. One of the first things that we could say uh, that the purpose that the law accomplished was that it took the guesswork out of moral behavior and right living. In chapter 2, verse 18, it says, you know what God wants, you know what is right, because you've been taught his law. And so in verse 18 there, it says, it's clear. If you have the law, at least one of the advantages or one of the purposes of it is you can answer the question, what does God want from me? Well, the law was designed and intended to teach that. If I'm going to be held accountable for my actions by God, I need to know what's onside and what's offside. And so, therefore, the law has a purpose and a helpful thing in that regard. The other helpful thing that the purpose that the law had and does is that before Christ came, it provided a way to be, the Scriptures teach, in right relationship with God. There was a very elaborate system of sacrifices and religious ordinances which had very specific functions attached to them. And the book of Hebrews and the book of Galatians talk a lot about it. Galatians chapter 3 verse 18 says it this way, the purpose of the law was to keep a sinful people in the way of salvation until Christ came into the world. And here's where our series phrase kicks in, but now... As Jennifer Hudson would say, if you've seen the commercials, it's a new day, it's a new way. You know. So, 
It's a new day, post-Christ. Now you're going to hear that commercial. I'm not Jennifer Hudson. I'm sorry that may have assaulted and, you know, and <laughs> offended some of you for me to sing that way. But um, New day, new way. Post-Christ, we're in the new day. That's the point of that. Um, why would God have to initiate something other than law to save us? Well, Romans 2 highlights some of the problems that were implicit in the law system. There's some purposes that were helpful and that were well-designed, and uh, God talks about that, and we're going to brush against those more when we come further in our teaching in Romans. But there were also some very significant problems that uh, were a part of the system of the law that would initiate or would cause God to have a new purpose and a new plan. So let's look at some of the problems that would be implicit in a law-driven system. The first problem is a problem of pride. Romans chapter 2, verse 17, uh, already highlights this for us. You who call yourself Jews, you're relying on God's law. You're boasting about your special relationship with God. Or look down in verse 29, which we'll read later on. Uh, no one who's a true Jew, whose heart is right with God, um, about obeying the law. A person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. But if you want to seek praise from people, the law is a pretty good way of doing it. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Because with any system of rules, there are people who keep the rules and people who break the rules. And so the challenge for people who keep them is to do so without somehow becoming feeling uh, morally superior to those who are, do not keep the rules maybe as well as those who do and creating a bit of a level of second-class citizenship. Some people, some of you maybe, uh, people like my wife, people like my mother-in-law, they would do exceptionally well living in a police state. Uh, you give them a list of rules, and their immediate inclination is to follow them as closely as they can because they know then they're doing everything the right way. My inclination is to look at the rules, largely see them as suggestions, discard the majority of them because they don't apply to me or don't make logical sense to me, and therefore get myself into lots of trouble. Uh, but then what happens in any law-based system is obviously then you can look down on those who don't follow the rules. And so the existence of the law has a dynamic problem built into it right from the very beginning, and that is the path and the problem of pride. And this was historically true for the Jews. The Old Testament teaches how they were to be a light to the nations, but they got pretty inwardly focused because they thought, we're special. God's given us the law, and he's given us special revelation. And so there were a whole series of challenges that were brought to that by the prophets later on. And we'll see in a minute, this can also be very true of contemporary Christians. So the second problem of the law, beyond pride, is the fact that it provides knowledge not only of what is good, but it also provides knowledge of what is evil. If you looked in your uh, Momentum journaling reading on Friday and on Saturday, we were reading through Romans chapter 7. And it talks about this. It says, if I live with no understanding of the law, like a rule like do not covet, then that's one thing, and Romans chapter 2, 12 to 16, talks a little bit about how would God hold someone accountable that doesn't have the law accessible to them, which is a good question for discussion in your life group. But as soon as there's a law introduced that says, do not covet, what do I immediately want to do? 
immediately or maybe over time, I want to covet. Now I know that it's offside in some way. It's like that old thought experiment where someone says to you, all right, for the next 60 seconds, I want you not to think about a pink elephant. All right? Get your stopwatch out. 60 seconds, do not think about a pink It's too late. You're already thinking about a pink I told you not to think about a pink elephant. And you've already broken the not thinking about a pink elephant rule. Because you know about its existence. And the law has, Romans 7 says, almost like a suggestive function because it provides us of knowledge of evil as well as good. And so over time, what not to do can begin to look very attractive to it. And so the existence of the law provides a standard, which when I become aware of it is helpful because I know what God wants me to do, but it's also unhelpful because what not to do is now clearly on the table and it becomes a source of temptation and becomes attractive. Which leads to the next challenge and problem that our text brings up. And that is people that know the law but don't live it out. This would be, in in our uh, way of speaking and thinking, we would use the term hypocrisy to describe this. And this is not simply a law problem. It's a challenge of human nature, which we studied in Genesis. The law becomes the standard by which I will be measured, not only before God, uh, but also before the world. Because in, uh, in Romans chapter 2, verse 24, it says, No wonder the scriptures say, The Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because you, of you, speaking of the Jews, because you know what the law is, but you're not keeping it. And so they know what God's law is too, and they can point at you and say, you know what, friend, you're just not measuring up. And so the problem with the law really at its heart is that it's impossible to keep it all. And James chapter 2, verse 10 says, if you can keep the whole law, but you are guilty in one single infraction, you're guilty of it all. You've moved from the category of law keeper to law breaker, and therefore, that's what Romans 2 begins to describe for us in the early part of the chapter about if I'm a law breaker, then God who is just must punish law breakers. And so what does that look like and where does it leave me? And so the basic message is, if it's up to the law to save you and me, we don't have a hope. Because the law has a tendency to make us into something. Because we can't keep it all throughout the whole course of our lives, we tend to develop a bit of a hierarchy where we say, well, do you know, I may not be able to keep all of the law, but I bet you I could keep more of it than so-and-so. And I bet you I could keep some of the bigger pieces of the law than so-and-so. And so law immediately causes us to compare and contrast our moral behaviors with others in hopes of winning at the game of religiosity. So if you want to win at that game, let me help you by laying out some of the wonderful ground rules of how to become a good legalist. There are seven easy steps if you would like to become a good legalist. I found these online, a simple seven-step program to being the most moralistic, legalistic person that you can possibly be. Step one, it's obvious, but it should be stated, make lots of rules. The more legalistic you'd like to be, the more rules you should probably have. Step two, push yourself very hard to try and keep all of the rules that you have made. 
Step number three. As soon as you fail to keep some of the rules that you have made, immediately castigate yourself. Because then guilt becomes a part of your system. And this can be helpful not only for reminding you of when you're not being a good legalist, but it's a wonderful tool to use as a weapon against other people. So you shouldn't normally just, uh, if you want to be a good legalist, just be upset on uh, yourself when you don't keep the rules. The fourth thing you should do is you should be proud of yourself when you do keep the rules. You need a little bit of positive affirmation in your life after all. And then, step five, and this is where legalism becomes really, really fun, appoint yourself as a judge over other people. Because then, number six, you should then feel an, a sense of entitlement to get angry with other people who break your rules or also get angry with other people who have different rules than you. And then, number seven, you can beat all of the losers at your game because you will have become a wonderful legalist in your own right. Now you can see, when we put it in black and white like this, why the law was insufficient to make me right with God and why God designed and implemented a new and living way. Because the law deals with externals. In verse 25 of Romans 2, Paul lists another external an external sign for the ancient Jews, which they were also very proud of, and that is physical circumcision. He says, in essence, you think that you're so great and so right with God because you're willing to follow a list of rules right down to physical circumcision and physical customs. And you're right, you want to get this list of rules right. Where and with whom you may eat, what you do and don't do on the Sabbath, precisely how much money you should give away. All of these external rules. And Paul says, you know what? You could keep them all if that was even possible, which it isn't, and you would still miss the point. Just like A.J. Jacobs did in his book. It's not about obeying every little jot and tittle of the law. The Pharisees of Jesus' day thought this, and they began to elevate the law to the place where it actually was above God himself. They were so concerned that they wouldn't break one of God's rules that they made their own set of rules to keep them from even getting close to breaking one of God's rules. And they became legalists. In our terminology today, we might be a little more kind and we might call someone like this a fundamentalist. Or maybe if we were on an honest day, we'd call them a legalist. And many of you have seen or been exposed to this kind of religiosity and the danger that happens when people, sometimes entire religious subcultures, go down that pathway. And it isn't pretty. So, by now, you might be saying to yourself, well, hooray! That sounds like great news. We can get rid of all of this law stuff. I'm under God's new system called grace, and I can just do whatever I want. Well, let me rein you in for just a few minutes, because Paul's going to do that in chapter 6, but we're just going to stick with chapter 2 for this morning. Uh, we'll get there in our series. But now, let me, let me try and give you a little bit of a summary of his logic that he's got going on in chapter 2 uh, as follows. So the summary of his argument might be stated as this, that those with some history or those with some knowledge of God's law 
actually do start out in an advantaged position. If you have some context for which understanding what God wants of you, some knowledge of God's law, you do start out in an advantaged position, he's arguing. Now, this is the case he's making to the Jews all through the book of Romans. You have incredible privileges, he says to them, to have been spared some of the stupidity and some of the heartache that some of the Gentiles who have lived their entire lives growing up without access to God have been a part of. And they, don't have, uh, they hadn't, didn't have a knowledge of God's moral law. And so you're privileged to have that, he says, as a part of your history. A more contemporary example that we might think of might be uh, someone who grew up in a culture that uh, is maybe has some religious overtones to it or some religious history or underpinnings to it. We might think about uh, somebody who went to, uh, who grew up in a Christian home or maybe who went to a Christian school and somebody then, uh, most of us, in fact, grew up in societies that are highly influenced by Judeo-Christian values and religious systems. So God's laws, for example, provide a lot of the framework for our legal system. So sometimes those who grew up in this type of a framework uh, think to themselves and get a little bit discouraged and think to themselves, especially when it comes to an experience like we're going to do on the 17th uh, of April where people are going to share their stories and your life stories with us. And so for those of you who want to be Um, covenant members here at Jericho, you need to be thinking about that, working on your story, and letting us know that you want to share on the 17th. Uh, But sometimes what happens in those contexts is, if you grew up with a lot of uh, advantage in this category, you think to yourself, man, listen to that story of transformation. I mean, that person was a godless heathen. Look at all of the stuff that they had in their lives. I mean, all of their addiction to drugs and alcohol and the horrific family circumstances which they came from. Wow, and then God saved them miraculously and transformed them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. I wish I had a a salvation testimony like that. I mean, my story is like boring. (laughs) It's like I grew up in a Christian home. I came to faith in God in Sunday school when I was five. I rebelled for 10 minutes when I was 16. You know, and we kind of look at other people and go, man, I wish my testimony was a little sexier. Like, oh, man. But then, talk to some of the people that that's their life and their experience. And you'll hear them say things like, man, I wish I had your experience. I wish that I was prevented. I wish I had some knowledge of God when I was growing up or that I was, I was a little bit more sensitized to what, who Christ was and could have spared myself some of the heartache of some of my previous thoughts and actions and way of living. And they almost have kind of the exact opposite. They say, wow, I would have loved to have had a story that started out with yours, where there was some knowledge of God or grew up in a home like yours. Well, you get the picture. The argument in Romans that he's making here is there is some strategic advantage to knowing God's law. But, and it's a huge but, But none of that ultimately makes a difference in your life if you don't act on the things that God reveals to us and move from a reliance strictly on law to an understanding of what is transpired and available to you in Christ Jesus and move from legalism to grace. 
Let's look at the next part of our text in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and verse 29. His argument continues. He says, you're not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you've gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, it's not about external stuff. A true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it's a change of heart produced by God's Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God or receives praise from God and not from people. It's not enough just to know God's law and to try and follow it. You have to experience a change of heart. Ultimately, his argument in Romans 2 is it's about what's going on in here, not about what's going on externally. It's ultimately not about the guardrails that the law can produce for us or help us with externally. If I want to be right with God, it's about my heart, not about keeping the law to get to that place. And this is one of the key points in the book of Romans, and it's why it goes back over and over and over 50 times against this concept of law, that when Christ came, he set us free from the moral obligation that we had to keep Old Testament laws. But now, and he's going to continue this argument, it doesn't mean that it's a free-for-all. That it just completely uh, releases us from any understanding of what God's law is about. Because now I'm guided, not by a set of external rules, I'm guided by a changed heart. But here's the deeply ironic thing that sometimes we miss in this conversation. And that is that um, I, when I'm guided by a changed heart, when I've experienced a changed heart, I actually will end up keeping a lot of the rules found in the Old Testament. I'll end up helping the poor, like our team is doing down in Guatemala this week. I'll end up living a generous life and giving of my resources to those who are in need and to further the work of God in the world. But I'm going to end up reading the scriptures and immersing myself in them to try and get to know God more. But it's not going to do it because I want to look good in front of other people, and I'm not going to do it because I want to check off a bunch of boxes to try and win brownie points with God. I do it because once my heart has been changed, and once I embrace the saving work of Jesus on the cross, like we experienced together last week at the Stations of the Cross, that's what makes me right with God, not my rule-keeping. God has given me a new heart, and part of my new heart is, it says in the book of Hebrews and all through the Old Testament, that God wants to write his laws on my heart. So I know what he wants me to do and know what he wants from me because of that relationship, not because he has a list of rules that he wants to try and help me keep. You might want to think of it uh, this way. In the state of Montana, in the early 90s, you might recall they had no posted speed limits on the interstate highway system. This has changed now because 
uh, frankly, the uh, National Department of Transportation in the states threatened to revoke their, any funding that they would give to the state, and thus they started posting speed limits. But back in the good old days in the 90s, uh, there were no posted speed limits in the state of Montana. So it was kind of like uh, the Autobahn without all of the nice cars. So the question then for a driver in Montana becomes, okay, well, I don't have to keep the law because there is no posted speed limit on this particular roadway. So then you have to ask yourself, you're driving through the state of Montana in the 90s, why, what speed limit should I go? And why should I decide that? What would be some kind of litmus tests for me to try and understand how fast I must drive? Because why keep the law if I don't have to? There's no law for me to break. Well, there's a few possible answers. Uh, first of all, you probably want to think about the fact that even though there isn't a speed limit posted, there still actually technically are laws that you're living under. Laws of inertia, laws of gravity, laws of physics and momentum, laws that will say, if you're going 110 miles an hour, you might not be able to make that corner as conveniently as you like to, uh, particularly if it's raining or uh, there are other things. So there's also other laws going on that you're governed by. There's the reality that your car, no matter how fast the make or model is, can only drive so fast. So you're really kind of even governed by that law. And the real kicker for those who have ever driven through or lived in the state of Montana is really more this, is weather conditions in Montana. Like, there may be no speed limit, but when you're encountering this type of weather, there really is a prudent speed limit that you should drive at. So similarly, we can say to ourselves, oh, hooray, God's laws have been fulfilled in Christ. They've been taken away. There's nothing that can slow me down. I can drive at whatever speed I like. But there really are still some laws at work. The road in your life is meant to be driven at a certain speed. So even though there is no law telling you how fast to drive if it's been removed, I still know what safe driving looks like, and I can still practice it. And this is part of the whole point that he's trying to make in chapter 2 and in our explanation of God's laws. In helpful ways, the discussion about God's laws helps to clarify for us that question which we all probably want to ask at some point in our lives, and that is, what in the world does God expect from me as a person? What, is, what does God want from me? And so as we look through the book of Romans and try and understand after Christ has fulfilled the requirements of the law, what would the answer to that question be? And the first question of response for us would be, God wants for you to experience a vibrant and active relationship with him, not just knowledge about him. Because if the law is external, I can know the law like the people in Romans 2 did, but I don't actually follow it. In, in Romans 2, it's talking about they're actually teaching others about the law and teaching others about God, but they're not actually practicing or in vibrant communion with God themselves. And so even teaching others about God, doing all kinds of good works is useless unless you do so from a position of an active and vibrant relationship with him. And maybe some of you are here today and you would say, well, I know a lot about God. Or I know I have a lot of information about the Bible. But maybe you've never made that choice or decision to say, I actually want to come to the place where I'm in an active relationship with God. 
maybe never made that choice to say, I don't just want to know a lot about the Bible, but I want to know you, Jesus. I want to know and experience a personal relationship with God. You can make that choice here today. And if that's you, when we move into our response in song in a few minutes when the team comes, then our prayer teams will be available over at the sides for you. And I want you to talk to them before you leave today and say, I want to know a little bit more about what Brad was talking about this morning, about a vibrant and active relationship with God. The second thing that this text shows us clearly to answer that question, what does God want from me? It's that God wants you to have a deeper understanding of his grace without flaunting that or without abusing his grace. Because you see, the Jews became very proud. They'd kept the law and they'd found lots of loopholes in it. And some Christians today think the new loophole is, woohoo, I'm under grace, not under the law. I can do whatever I want. Paul says later in his writings in Galatians chapter 4, uh, Galatians chapter 5, rather, verse 14, you actually will fulfill the entire requirements of the law if you can do one simple thing, and that is love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we love our neighbors, we don't flaunt grace, we extend it. And when we receive God's grace from him, when we extend it to others, we're deepening our understanding of it without flaunting it or without abusing it. And when we receive God's grace in that way, we follow God's laws, not because we have to, but because we want to. On the one side, we can get into the air, which we'll talk about later in Romans, about flaunting our freedom in Christ. But on the other side, the temptation that probably is a little more prevalent for us today and that comes to us most every day in our lives is to make a choice and walk in legalism. Because frankly, it's easier to be legalistic. The rules are clear-cut. You're in or you're out. It's easy to tell who's in and out. Legalism is alive and well in our worlds and most of our hearts. And when we do that, the text says, well, you'll receive praise from somebody, but it's not going to be praise from God. And so if you want to receive praise from God, we follow his law because of the relationship that we have with him, not because of a list of to-dos that we've received from him. Let's pray together, and we're going to respond to this in song. God, we say thank you today for the work of your spirit and your grace in our lives. We acknowledge that we're really powerless to save ourselves. We could keep the whole law, fall down on one point, and you would still count us guilty as lawbreakers. And so what we need is not to em embrace a fresh system of rules that says, I'm going to try a little harder this week. What we need, God, is for you to change our hearts. For you to move in our hearts in such a way that we end up loving our neighbor and fulfilling the law, not because we have to, but because we want to. Because your grace is sufficient for us. And so God, now as we go from this place, we want to go as people who live 
and a correct understanding of what it is that you want us to do. And your scripture says, he has shown you what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so, Father, would you empower and strengthen us in this place today to do just that? And as we go from this place, I pray that you'd empower and strengthen us for life and for godliness, not for trying harder, but for more deeply receiving and living out your grace and thus fulfilling the requirements of your law. In the name of the Father who sent the Son, in the name of the Spirit who empowers us, we receive this as your word for us today. Amen.